This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. Now, LifeAid has several products, one of which I want to highlight because it's so pertinent to you, the sleep-deprived audience. Their product, FocusAid, is a healthy alternative to the energy drinks that I see so many of us relying on because we are exhausted. There's no other way of putting it. These energy drinks that I've seen are putting our men and women into hospitals with arrhythmias, GI distress, adding to anxiety, certainly affecting mental health. So what FocusAid has done is they've removed all the terrible ingredients and used natural, healthy ingredients, natural sweeteners, and replaced the high levels of caffeine with a nootropic. And what a nootropic is, is a supplement for your brain. As a first responder, I can attest that this then allows you to be alert on a call, but when it is time to rest, to go to bed, whether it's the end of the shift, whether it's after a call, you're actually able to not only sleep, but get a better quality of sleep as well. So an incredible product I urge you guys to try, and LifeAid has reached out to you, the audience, to offer you a discount of 15% if you use the discount code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. So that's L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. Use the code SHIELD, which is S-H-I-E-L-D, and please try this. It's going to end up being less expensive than the drinks that you're using And I'm telling you right now, it's an incredible product. And please reach out and let me know what you think. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15%, not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that. And that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load. But they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack of all trades, master of none. And we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15. S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 265 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it was my absolute honor to interview Mike Durant. Now, Mike is one of the special operations helicopter pilots flying the Black Hawks that went down in Somalia. And despite the heroic efforts of many of the men on the ground, Mike was captured. So we discuss, obviously, a very pivotal moment in his life. We discuss the road back mentally, 
physically, how he ultimately returned to service, and then transitioning from the military after a full career, how he then transitioned into the civilian world and became an entrepreneur himself with a very successful business to date. So before we go to the interview, please take a moment and go to your app that you listen to this podcast on, subscribe, leave feedback, and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then take your social media, email, word of mouth, and share these shows. Mike's life story is incredibly powerful. What he's doing now is incredibly powerful, and there's so much information that needs to be heard in this and all the other episodes. And I ask you to be the extended family of this podcast and help share these amazing men and women's stories. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mike Durant. Enjoy. So, Mike, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. That's my pleasure. So, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Actually, this whole week, I am uh, at uh, our home office headquarters in Huntsville, Alabama, where I've lived since 2001. Perfect. Okay. So, I'd love to start at the very beginning. Um, Where were you born, and then what was your family dynamic like as far as what your parents did and how many siblings? Okay, I was born in a small town in northern New Hampshire. We uh, we pronounce it Berlin. Uh, it's uh, you know not Berlin as folks who aren't from there might refer to it. Uh, paper mill town. My my father initially when I was young actually worked for the paper company. He was a surveyor. He went out to basically find the tracks of uh, forest that you know would make for good harvesting. Uh, tough work, especially in the winter up there, but he enjoyed being outside a lot. Uh, and as a result of that, I, I spent a fair amount of time uh, outdoors, uh, did some hunting and snowshoeing and snowmobiling and all the things that uh, that you do when you live in those areas and, and really enjoyed it a lot. I I, I enjoyed my uh, youth in, uh, in that region. My mom worked uh, pretty much my whole life. Uh, as I recall it, she was... Uh, a factory worker at one point, and then she got a job at, uh, at the school system, was a executive secretary for a while. She was a uh, guidance counselor for a while, which was good and it was bad because when your mother works in the school system, you can't get away with much. <laughs> no, especially not in administration. <laughs> no. So she knew everything that was going on. Uh, I still managed to push the edge of the envelope a little bit there, but uh, made it through uh, okay. I have one sister. Uh, she's slightly younger than, than me, and... Uh, uh, basically spent my whole uh, upbringing in that same town. We we moved around a couple of times, but all within that same town. I graduated in, uh, in 1979 and initially wanted to fly helicopters for the Army uh, more than anything else. That's what my uh, goal was. But at the time, uh, I was told that you couldn't do that right away. So I joined the Army anyway with the uh, with the aspiration to apply for flight school once I was on active duty. And as it turns out, I was able to do that and successfully uh, went there in the early 80s. Excellent. Now, did you have any members of the military in your extended family? 
Well, yes and no. It depends on if you, uh, you know, how you view the National Guard. I mean, it's absolutely part of our military, but it's a little bit different than active duty, especially then. You know, active uh, National Guard was not deployed like they have been uh, for the last 20 years. So today, I think, you know, being in the National Guard is more like being on active duty. But then it really wasn't. It was truly a, you know, one weekend a month job and two weeks uh, at summer camp. So, <laughs> you know, the military was around me but it wasn't quite like growing up in a true military background but my I mean, my dad was in the national guard my uncles were so it, you know it was it was really part of my uh, you know very early upbringing right yeah it was definitely a desire to serve especially i mean that must have been pretty uh actually pretty brave considering what they just witnessed with vietnam and and the conscription side yeah you know it was the tail end of that i was really young and you know, at the time, didn't really pay that much attention to it when Vietnam was going on. And about the time that I started thinking seriously about the military, we were, you know, in the recovery stage, I guess I would say, as a, as a, as a nation in terms of the impact that Vietnam had on us directly. Right. Now, as a, you know, a, a school boy, were you an athlete back then? Did you play a lot of sports? I played sports, but I don't call myself an athlete. I get that answer uh, I, uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm okay at some things. I'm I'm a decent hockey player. I I played football. I played uh, a little bit of soccer, which was just really coming to life in the U.S. at the time. Um, I'm a big skier. I still love skiing today, and uh, you know, water skiing, all sorts of things. But didn't do any of them really exceptionally well. I mean, I, I was uh, you know the the defensive back in football and. Uh, third string running back and uh, you know that that kind of a an athlete kind of out there for the for the physical challenge but uh but you know not not uh not not going to get a, a scholarship on it for sure right now obviously we're going to hear about a, a certain period of your life where you know you endured a hell of a lot and obviously you had to have some sort of resilience to to get through that. Are there any areas of your childhood that you attribute to the formation, the early formation of some of that resilience? Well, you know, if I had to point out one thing, I would say just the environment I grew up in in general. I mean, that is a blue collar town. It's a tough, it's a tough environment. Um, you know, my dad grew up, uh, I'll say poor. I mean, by today's standards, certainly, but even then, uh, you know, they didn't have a lot. And, and that, you know, when you have to work, you know, the stories he would tell, uh, you know, chopping and hauling firewood for the winter for, you know, what today you wouldn't even bend over to pick up off the ground. You know, it's, it, it was, it was a tough life and there wasn't a lot of sympathy for, um, you know, if you, if you got hurt or if there was a, uh, you know, some kind of challenge you were faced with, it was, you know, more of a, you know, look, just suck it up kind of thing and, and press on. And you certainly get some of that too. When you, when you play sports like football and hockey, they're, they're, they're like that. So it all sort of came together to uh, create this, uh, uh, the person that I am, I guess, which is, uh, I, I don't make a lot of excuses. I do what I can to overcome the challenges that I face and, uh, you don't hear me complain a lot. Yeah. It's an interesting, um, paradox though, because, I think the the team element of the military, the fire service, you know, um, even just just growing up in an area where it's a struggle, um, there's a lot of toughness, but I think there's a lot of tribal um, involvement too, where there's a lot of caring as well as that toughness. And I think that some of the mistakes some people do when throwing around words like, you know, rub some dirt, and especially in the mental health side, 
is that understanding that that toughness it also has another side to it, which is compassion from others as well. Right, right. And, and you know, I don't, I don't want to put a negative light on it. Like I said earlier, I, I, I love, I look back on my, my upbringing, my childhood, and I, I loved growing up there. It was, I have just tremendously fond memories. But it, but it was tough. I mean, it was, it was not a, uh, an elitist lifestyle by any means. Yeah, and I think there's, there's a lot of value in, in some suffering. You know, there really is. Um, so as far as you know, career then. You obviously said that you you ultimately wanted to become a pilot. Were there any pivotal moments that made you specifically want to fly helicopters? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I still remember the the, the moment we, we had a friend uh, of the family. We we'd go camping a lot in the summertime, and and uh, you know, not not like backpack camping, but where you go to a campground and you set up your camper or your tent and you stay there for you know, a few weeks or, you know, sometimes you stay there the whole summer and you commute back and forth to work is the way, the way my parents did it sometimes. And, uh, there's, there's sort of a culture that, that develops within the campground community. That's like a little village itself. And, uh, one of the, uh, campers was a helicopter pilot and he actually had his own aviation business where he had a couple of helicopters and a couple of airplanes and, one day he said, uh, you know, hey, uh, I got to, I got to move one of my aircraft, and uh, you guys want to go for a flight. So I mean, he landed in the field right near the campground, you know, refueled the thing with his pickup truck. We jumped in it and and went flying over Mount Washington, which is the highest mountain in the you know, east of the Mississippi. It's six thousand two hundred eighty feet, and we're over the top of this thing. And uh, I mean, I'm looking around like this is unbelievable that that this could be a job, you know, because again, blue collar, you grow up. Uh, career aspirations are largely, you know, go work at the mill or, you know, they're not, you know, I'm going to go be a pilot and, and, and fly for the military. Uh, you know, some of us have the unique opportunity to get exposed to that, but generally speaking, it's just not the kind of environment that breeds that. So getting that opportunity to go do something really special like that, uh, it, it changed my life. No question about it. Absolutely. Now, what you again, what do you attribute to actually having the uh the skills and 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 the ability to pass the test because i know that you know not every, not any person in the military can just walk in and say i want to start flying helicopters right i mean there's a pretty robust uh process that you have to go through it involves uh, you know academic assessments and and uh cognitive assessments and psychological assessments and you name it because it costs a lot of money to send people through flight training so the military wants to make sure that they're picking people who have the right uh, or, you know, a, a good strong probability that they'll make it through. It's uh, no system perfect and some don't. But, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's the sum total of everything. It's the fact that I, I did pretty well in school. I didn't, I didn't try as hard as I should have. I probably could have gotten academic scholarships wherever I wanted to go if I really would have applied myself. But I didn't. I was more, you know, that blue collar kid who just, uh, you know, didn't work real hard and did what he needed to do in school and, and just kind of got by. Uh, but I had the aptitude, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't, uh, I, I was mentally able to, uh, to learn and, you know, could, could pass stressful situations. And then I had the coordination from playing those different sports and skiing and good balance. And, and, uh, you know, I, I've been blessed with one thing that's, hard to train and that's situational awareness meaning you know kind of knowing 
physically where you are in space and if you're operating a machine, you know, what's going on with that machine and around that machine. And and it comes, you can, you can develop it with practice, but to have it kind of right out of the gate is, is uh, unusual. And, uh, and I do feel like that's one of those things that I just always had. Yeah. Now, I want to parallel this with, with what you're doing now with your current business, uh, Pinnacle Solutions. Um, I'm always fascinated as to you know, hiring practices. So I know you talk about this these days as well, but um, what do you think that some of the things that they did recruiting you back then that were were good? I mean, I can tell you right now in the fire service and the, and the, and the police service, when the bar comes down, we create more problems in that infrastructure. And, and it seems like keeping that bar high is the best thing for, you know, first responders. Um, in your particular area in aviation, what were some of the hiring practices they had back then? Yeah, you have to keep the bar high. You you have to. The temptation's always there. You know, you want to make the numbers, but you'll pay for it later. I think we all realize that. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I've often told this story uh, when I think about people we bring into the company that I have now. If we had the luxury of doing a source selection uh or selection process and a training process like we did in the military, we, I mean, we, well, first of all, we'd be bankrupt, but we, we would, you know, have a team of fantastic people because I think about, you know, all, the journey all the way to the special operations unit. I mean, it, it took years, years of training and years of assessment and years of screening and going to various schools and gaining experience. And, you know, unfortunately in industry, we, we can't afford to do that. I mean, you have to bring, you have to bring people in, Ideally, you know that meet the the the, the skill requirements and the education requirements, uh, and and are a fit for your culture. But uh, you know the opportunity to really train them and, and get them uh, to be the perfect fit is is difficult because there's an economic impact to that. Where the military doesn't have that problem. It's uh, I mean you could argue it has over the last 20 years because we're, we've got to get people deployed, but. Uh, you know, there's still a robust training budget and there's still opportunity and, and an absolute need to get people ready before you put them, put them in positions where uh, you're going to depend on their abilities. Yeah. What's well, better the machinery that you're actually, you know, flying as well? I mean, the, the cost factor attached to one mistake with that, as well as the human lives must be a factor too. Yes. I mean, you can't put your trust in somebody that's not ready. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, um, when you transitioned to special operations, what again? What was that level up like from you know the training you're experiencing at the the regular level to you know this elite group that you uh, joined with the 160th? So you go from thinking you're somebody to to realizing you're nobody is basically <laughs> the, it, you know at the time I, I don't think it's as bad as it is as it, now as it was then but there was absolutely a hierarchy and when you came in even after you made it through the you know almost year long training you had to go through to just to get to the flight platoon and again this is after you've already been a pilot and you've already done things out in the regular army you got to go through this long long period of training and various courses just to get to the flight line and once you get there you're like a nobody you're a second class citizen because you haven't really proven yourself yet and then you got to go through that whole process, and for most people, I mean that that part takes years. Uh, and then you know you make your way up, and then you're that guy. You're you're the one who's kind of looking down at those new people that walk in the door. Uh, that, but it is it, it's there's a purpose to it, and and most of the people 
that are in those organizations, and it's not obviously just not not just the aviation; it's all of the special operations forces are are the best of the best. They just are, and when you're around that, it, it makes you better. It makes you a better leader. It makes you a better tactician. It makes you better at what you do because you want to aspire to be like them because you're seeing these just amazing examples of leadership and then warriors and you name it and uh it, that changed my life too i would say you know that professionally that was the, the second big turning point in my life was uh, getting into that organization right now obviously when you went in i'm assuming there was still many you know people that you were training with and under from that vietnam era so uh, compared to let's say the the late 90s where there'd actually been very few conflicts that we were involved with were you were you able to still glean from all the experience of of that combat that those helicopter pilots saw? You know what's interesting about the special operations world, and again, it's changed now because we've been in conflict for twenty years. But uh, we train at such a level that it's almost like you're in combat. You know, I mean, the the, re, the realism of the training and the the challenges put test you to the limit. So. Uh, I wouldn't say that there was a whole lot of Vietnam legacy knowledge that uh, was being applied by the time I got to the unit. I got there in 88. At that point, the unit had been around long enough with, you know, just groundbreaking technology and, and tactics, techniques, and procedures that it was all more lessons learned from application in that world. And, uh, and it, it almost created a a whole new capability really you know when you think about it you know that's the period where we we developed really developed night vision technology night vision goggles forward-looking infrared uh, we developed you know faster open insertion capabilities and just all these things that are you know still in use today and are the are the foundation for for some of these uh, special capabilities and, and the proliferated out into the regular force now but back then those were all brought to life by this unit and uh you know just uh, the deployment capabilities and the weapons and the navigation systems and avionics and everything it was all just cutting edge and many much of it had never been used before and it was just an amazing thing to be a part of and some of the special operations uh men and women that i've had on you know talk about pre Basically, pretty much pre nine eleven, so especially pre Gulf War, um, you know, the, the, there was mainly training for either like a, a World War Two environment, more of a European battleground, or obviously a jungle back battleground like um, you know the Vietnam era. And the this new urban interface that you found yourself in was very new, and they had to obviously adapt. And you know, many of these were nowhere near any water, and so the seals obviously had to adapt to their their terrain. As pilots specifically prior to Somalia, were you well-versed in that particular area that you found yourself in the end? Uh, you know, I feel like we were because we'd done a lot of urban training, uh, a lot of work with police force. Uh, you know, L.A. was a, a place we'd go to a lot to work, you know, in, in the urban environment because we knew, you know, uh, these special units primarily in the early days were counterterrorism. So, we we kind of knew that odds are you know you're going to end up operating in that kind of a place. So we we trained in all those places. We trained in the mountains. We trained at sea. We trained in urban environments. We trained in the desert. So we we were uh, I feel as qualified as we could have been 
for that environment. There were a few things we learned in Somalia that I don't think uh, we we'd really come to appreciate in the training environment, but I think overall we were, we were pretty well prepared. Okay, so that leads me, and this is going to seem so obvious to you, but I want to put it out there because I know some people listening come from departments where this philosophy may be not fully understood. But from the special operations perspective, how much importance is placed on reality of training and and then trying to imagine scenarios that may happen even if they've never happened to you before? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's nothing more important. It, it, you, you don't you don't want to go into a real world operation uncomfortable. You you want to go into it feeling like I might not have done this exact thing before, but I've done something really close to this many times before, and and I know exactly how to do it. And and that's what training's all about is to get you to that level where you're comfortable with what you're doing. You don't feel like you're beyond the edge of your envelope, and. Uh, you know, I, I certainly from a, a, you know, flying the aircraft perspective, that's absolutely how I felt. We, I mean, we flew a lot and I, I was fortunate in that I, I flew a lot even before I got to the, to the special ops unit just because of the timing of where I went. And so I had a lot of experience and, and that's what you need when you're a young pilot. And I sympathize with, you know, some of the people that fly more advanced aircraft today that, you know, it's too expensive to fly. They don't get a lot of time in the seat. It's tough to develop as a, as a, a, a you know, good solid crew member. If you don't eat a lot of time in the seat, and you know, we give we've given them technology, we've given them mission aids and navigation systems and everything else. But in the end, you know, when it comes right down to it, there are situations that you have to handle on your own. And uh, the more time moving the sticks around, as we say it, you have uh, the better. Yeah. All right. Well, I would love if you wouldn't mind to just uh, get you to walk us through your own, you know, perspective of what happened on October 3rd in um, Mogadishu. Because for two reasons, firstly, there's probably many people listening to this that, you know, just weren't around. I'm 45. So obviously I'm aware of the actual event. And then, you know, the movie that was made years later that that kind of revamped the story a bit. Um, But, you know, what was your perspective from, you know, prior to that mission to obviously, you know, how it how it concluded? So I guess I'd start with saying that Black Hawk Down does a decent job. It uh, I, I get asked that question all the time. It's the most common question I'm ever asked, and I tell people it's accurate enough, meaning it's not perfect. And I could point out 50 things that are wrong, but it, you know, in, in terms of the general story, uh, it's it's it pretty much lays out what happened. But from my perspective. Uh, you know, we'd been in country for about two months. Things were on a roll. I mean, we were really doing well. We had done six missions before this one and some pretty challenging, some not so challenging, but, you know, we're all in the city, some day, some night, uh, all after people. We had captured, I think, somewhere around 25 or 27 individuals on a list of 50, including the number two guy. So, you know, if, if if you did that today in a threat environment, it would be lauded as a tremendous success. When when you're when you're there less than two months and you've caught twenty seven out of fifty terrorists and the number two guy on the list, that's pretty darn good. Uh and we hadn't lost any aircraft and, and we had a few people get wounded but nothing serious. So things are going well. Um which is part of the problem because when things are going well you tend to relax a little bit. You tend to, I'll use the word complacent. I wouldn't say it was widespread. I wouldn't say it was a significant issue, but 
you know, anytime you talk to a high performance organization that has sustained excellence for a period of time, that's got to be the number one threat is that people are going to get complacent because you just think, you know, we're this good. We don't need to work as hard as we did at one point to maintain this, this level of proficiency. So anyway, uh, October 3rd rolls around. I was a flight lead on this mission. So I'm, I'm right there in the ops center when the Intel comes in and, you know, it, initially it, Looked like another hit. It's uh, there. Were, there were, I always talk about the four risk factors on this mission that you know altogether had never been present before, and that is worst part of the city. We're right near the Bakara Market, so we know reaction force is literally minutes away. Uh, it's daytime. We don't uh, have any night vision technology advantage because we're going in the daytime. Can't land the aircraft because uh, the streets are too narrow. So we've got to do rooftop or fast rope insertions and then rooftop extractions or go out by ground vehicle. And we chose to go out by ground vehicle because we felt like probably the threat is a little high in this area to send the helos back in. And then the fourth one was we've done this six times. So they now know how this is going to go down. And, and any enemy, it doesn't matter who they are, how, how uneducated, primitive, disorganized they are, they're going to get better. I mean, they, they, it's just a natural human characteristic that we adapt, we learn, and we, we you know, figure out things, and then we apply those, those, that knowledge to, to future experiences. And, and, you know, examples of what the Somalis did are, are uh, numerous. A couple of the most notable is they set up roadblocks. They knew there would be a ground element involved somehow. So they put garbage and debris and disabled vehicles in the street and they caught them on fire to try to limit and then trap the, the movement of, of ground vehicles. They had a radio network set up where, and we didn't know this until after the fact, but they actually were making uh, radio calls and then communicating out through local channels. When we'd hit a target, they were basically sending everyone there. You know, they're, they're hitting whatever, Bakara Market. And then, you know, once the word got out, people flocked. And some were armed, some were not. But in an urban environment where you're, you know, surrounded, literally, uh, it, it's hard to distinguish between who the threats are and who, you know, who the innocent bystanders are, especially if they're all coming at you. So it, it really complicated uh, the situation. They uh, started shooting RPGs. If, you know, if there's one thing that had a more of an impact than anything else, it's that. On the first six missions, we probably saw five RPGs explode. On this mission, they estimate they fired 125 at us. So, I mean, they were, they were all in. I mean, you know, if you, if you watch Texas Hold'em, they were all in because they, they felt like this, uh, you know, this is their chance to shoot down a helicopter. Uh, they had proven they could because a few weeks before they shot down one from uh, another unit. Uh, so now that that really sort of boosted their uh, optimism about the you know regarding their their chances of shooting one down. So they they basically shot everything they had and and uh, in the end five Blackhawks get shot down. Most people don't know that it wasn't just mine and and Cliff and Donovan's. It was there was five aircraft shot down. I happened to be the third one of, of five. So why R2 get all the attention is that R2 went down behind enemy lines. So anyway, the hit goes okay. And uh, about 40 minutes in, after the Somalis had done what I just described, they all flocked to the fight. They got the burning roadblocks going. The the uh, con- ground convoys having trouble, you know, finding the target and then navigating around these obstacles. 
and we've got a black uh, two Blackhawks in tight trying to provide some overhead fire support, and the first one gets hit by a rocket propelled grenade and gets shot down. And that, you know, in my book, we describe it as uh, pulling a thread on a sweater. Where I mean, this is this is where it starts to unravel, you know, because now the commander's barely got the resources he needs to fight this fight on his terms, and now you're on the enemy's terms because you got you know, isolated survivors, you don't really have good resources to go address that issue. And as soon as you try to fix that problem, you're taking resources away from the primary target, and then you're putting them at risk. So the second bird shot down is the search and rescue bird over at the crash site, and it gets it gets hit by an RPG, makes it back to the airfield, fortunately. And then uh, I get called in to replace that first bird, and uh, we don't have a sniper on board, but we've got miniguns, so we're we're going to get in close and try to protect the guys on the ground with our miniguns. And uh, uh, we made it around the target about four times when we got shot down, uh, again, by an RPG. Took the tail off the aircraft, uh, which caused the violent spin, and somehow we uh, we crashed on the wheels and all survived the impact. But at that point, we're isolated, and uh, there's there's really no one. There's no one left to help us. Everyone's either on the ground or in the ground convoy. The only two left are two snipers on board, uh, another Blackhawk. It's uh, Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart, names that are familiar to most who uh, have served in the military and a lot who have not. They, uh, they volunteered to come into our crash site, and uh, initially the commander said no because he didn't think that uh, it was a – a mission that they could possibly accomplish, but they insisted. And on the third request, as I understand it, they were given permission to come in and they got dropped off. They pulled me out of the cockpit. They tried to help everybody else. And then uh, together uh, we, we tried to hold down the fort, as you will. Unfortunately, we were surrounded and uh, vastly outnumbered uh, in the firefight. Uh, Randy and Gary both are killed. Uh, Ray Frank, my co-pilot, is killed. The crew chiefs uh, were injured badly and probably wouldn't have survived anyway. But uh, they 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 die somewhere along the way there, and uh, and then I get uh, I get captured and taken into captivity. Now, just touching on Randy and, and Gary for a second, I, I heard you in another podcast, and I've never heard this this mentioned before um, about the ammunition and how that basically affected them even you know being able to protect you even longer. Right. Uh, so, you know, they have their personal weapons. Uh, you know, I had an MP5 and I had an M9 pistol. I'm sure they each had at least a pistol and a, and a assault rifle. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we were we were holding our own for a few minutes. And then uh, Gary was hit and I heard him uh, say something uh, like, damn, I'm hit. I don't recall exactly what he said at this point. But and then Randy uh, grabbed his uh what I believe is a car 15 and uh, he came around the nose and gave that me that weapon. So I realized because I was out of rounds in my MP5, I realized that, you know, th- things are, are really going south here. Uh, if, if it's down to me and Randy and he's about out of ammunition. So he asked me where the crew chief's weapons were. And I told him where they were in the aircraft and he ran in and grabbed the two uh, M16s that they had. And he came back out and he went and made his last stand. Um, the the irony, I suppose, of it is that we had uh, miniguns on the aircraft, and they fire uh, 7.62 caliber rounds, and they fire at such a high rate that we've got pretty good-sized ammo cans. The ammo cans have 1,500 rounds of ammunition in each, and I'm pretty sure we had two on each side. So 
at 6,000 rounds is 7.62, but we couldn't fire it because the guns require uh, electrical power from the aircraft to operate. So we had 6,000 rocks, as I uh, as I describe it. And you know they've done some things since to 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 uh, be able to take advantage of those rounds, but it was pretty frustrating because obviously if the minigun was operational, we probably could have held up for quite some time, but uh, it was not. Yeah, and I just want to stand them for a second. So just to be clear for everyone listening, so Randy and Gary understood the gravity of the situation and basically pushed and pushed and pushed to to go down there to protect you guys and try and try and rescue you. Um, yeah, knowing knowing that there was a very very high chance that they might not make it. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and 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 we wouldn't have. You know, I I mean, I is there some extreme scenario where I you know they, I still would not have been killed, I suppose, but you know I would have been in the cockpit when they overran the site because I couldn't get out of the aircraft, and uh, and you know there's there's really no question in my mind that I, I'm alive because of what they did and and they were awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor which is the first one since Vietnam at the time and and absolutely deserved it no no question yeah and it just that goes back to what we were talking about with the hiring practices to to find such incredible human beings and then obviously give them the training and then you know the the absolute pride of the men you know that they're they're alongside to do something like that, I think just speaks of the true brotherhood that we talk about. No question about it. And, and, you know, in some ways you could argue it is similar to sports, although that, that, uh, may be, uh, uh, unfair to even compare the two, but you know, it's, it's about commitment to the team. It's about commitment to each other it's about doing everything you can to accomplish the mission and and you know your your own personal safety in many cases is is secondary to that commitment to that mission and to commitment to your your fellow warrior and that they absolutely personified that in spades yeah absolutely amazing well then um so i'd love to hear you know what were the injuries that you sustained and then obviously you know walk us through once the somalis got to you yeah, I was uh, I was pretty banged up. I I, I was an orthopedic surgeon's uh, dream, I suppose, <laughs> because I had a lot of uh, I uh, I crushed vertebrae in my spine from the vertical impact, which was actually the most painful thing. Uh, I was knocked unconscious, and then I um, I broke my femur, which uh, I know we're not all doctors. It's your thigh bone, is the uh, largest bone in your body that snapped in half on the edge of the seat. Uh, from the impact, and then when uh, when the Somalis overran the site, they broke my nose, my cheekbone, and my eye socket. Uh, and then at some point, my femur actually went out the backside of my leg as they were dragging me around. I got shot the next day. Um, I think that's it. Uh, <laughs> you make that sound uh, like that was a trivial <laughs> list. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty good list. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's really another miracle that uh, I can do the things that I can do today. Uh, just amazing care. Although I did go without care for 11 days because of the situation, but um, we had done some things like uh, taking antibiotics uh, as a precautionary measure because it's kind of a nasty place. And uh, I think that probably contributed to me uh, not uh, getting more infections than I did. The one infection I did get is actually in my sinus from the fractures in my face. 
but uh, somehow I never got an infection in my, in my femur, and that's just amazing because I was in the filth for you know two weeks and then in traction for another couple of weeks and never even got the femur fixed for over a month. And, uh, you know, there's people who get infections in, in hospitals. It's, it's just crazy. Yeah, it is. Now, now speaking of that, so you, you know, your face is smashed in. So obviously I'm sure your breathing was hard. You know, you probably barely take a breath because of your spine. You couldn't bear your own body weight. You probably had pretty significant blood loss because of the femur. What was your self-talk through this, knowing there may not be an end, knowing you may, you know, you may get killed at any moment? How, how did you convince yourself to stay calm? And, and, and also what was the, the, the self-talk for the actual pain itself? So I think part of it is, is, uh, a natural capacity that, that we as humans have, which, uh, is shock. You know, it, it, I think that's part of it is that you're, you're not fully aware of, of what's happened to you. And, and that's probably the, by design. And I, I don't recall this thought during all this about these injuries. I don't recall. I re, what I recall is just thinking about, you know, what did I need to do? You know, like, like in the cockpit, I remember I, I need to get my weapon, you know, I need to, so I, I bent over and, and got my MP5 and I got the debris out of the windshield so that I could see in case I needed to, you know, to engage somebody that might be coming at the aircraft and did the same thing on the ground. And then was, you know, we communicated with one of the helicopters. It was Randy was standing in front of me. We made the radio call and, uh, you know, I, I was, explaining to him, you know, how our radio nets were set up and that, and then that kind of stuff. So it was really more about thinking about what do we need to do in the situation and not so much about, you know, the desperation of it all. I mean, there were times like, like when, when, when Randy went down, I, I thought it was over. I mean, I, you know, I, I couldn't move. I couldn't hide. There's probably hundreds of people surrounding us at this point, And, uh, I just remember looking up at the sky, sort of accepting the fact that uh, that was the last thing I was going to see, and then miraculously, I was given this uh, this gift of a second life. Yeah. Now that that happened because well, yeah, I'd love to hear the story. I know the story, but so initially you were about to be clubbed to death, which you know sounds absolutely awful. What was that that kind of intervention that ultimately led you to becoming a hostage instead of a casualty? So this is as told by the Somalis. They, uh, when Mark Bowden wrote Black Hawk Down, he went over there and interviewed them, and they told him that they they had been told by uh, General Adid, who was the leader of the Habergetter clan, he's the number one guy we were after. That he he had been, he had told his people that he wanted an American prisoner, and the mob wasn't thinking about that. They were thinking about you know all the things that they were angry about. Is the only thing I can come up with to explain why they were so enraged um the uh but the but the but the Habergetter clan soldiers or militiamen uh realized that hey the general wants a, a captured american so they sort of broke it up and they fired shots in the air and they got control of things and and uh and that's how i ended up surviving the moment all right now again i want to i want to move past this and, and talk about your recovery but just before we do so it ended up being 11 days and i know that they were you know the, the u.s was flying over with recordings saying that they were still looking for you they're not leaving without you um you know, how much did that factor into you 
you know, finding hope and, and, and trusting that you would ultimately be rescued? Well, you know, it's interesting, and there's not many people who can say that they've had this experience, but when you're in the unit that would be sent to go rescue somebody like this, you kind of know what's going on behind the scenes, and, and you know, because you, you've been involved in the planning of these things before, and, you know, I, I knew that no question, as soon as the dust settled on this operation and everybody got recovered, that if it, it was just me, because I didn't know, I, I mean, I thought, more of us had survived uh that you know the planning to to conduct rescues was was absolutely underway so it it didn't surprise me to hear that but it was motivational and very emotional actually because you know one of the voices was a very good friend of mine and when you hear your friend calling to you from the sky it's uh it's pretty powerful absolutely now was it ultimately a negotiation that secured your release so the president sent the former ambassador, Robert Oakley, to Somalia to sort of untangle this mess because it was a mess at that point. And, and, uh, and I said that actually in captivity, that things had gone wrong there, and they absolutely had gone wrong there uh, in many, many, many ways. And, and Robert Oakley was a, a – if we had a 1,000 Robert Oakleys in this world all out representing our country around the world, we'd have a lot less problems because he was just a, he was a great statesman. People trusted him. The Somalis respected him. And as soon as he came on the scene, the whole tone changed. And he, he and I've spoke, he's since passed, but I've spoken with him a few times about it. And uh, he basically said, I told him, look, you got two choices. You either let him go unconditionally or you don't. And if you don't, we're going to figure out where he is eventually, and we're coming with everything we got. And this time, none of your militiamen are walking away. And, and they they believed him because he, he was that kind of guy. And they thought it, thought it over and thought about their options. And they said, well, it's absolutely in our best interest to just let him go. And they did. All right. So interesting side note then. What do you think, Robert Oakley, if, if you, as, as an incredible member of the military that you are, have so much admiration for him. What do you think his philosophies would be on our current conflict and the strategy there? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, pick and choose. You tell me. <laughs> I, I'm a fireman, not a soldier. So, yeah. Well, I, I and and my opinions may be controversial, but they are what they are. I think we should have been out of Afghanistan a long time ago. I, I think. Uh, the opportunity in my mind was when we we uh, we got Bin Laden. I mean, that to me was the reason we went. And and when that was over, I believe we should have left. Now, you know, in the end, maybe I'll be wrong, and maybe Afghanistan will turn into some blossoming, wonderful place that joins the rest of the civilized world, and the violence goes away, and and all of the the the. Uh, the, the bad uh, Taliban and other influences that that exist there still today will 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 vanish. I'm not optimistic that will happen. So I disagree there. I think I think and I think he would have been the kind of person that would have been a realist and said, look, you know, this is in some ways this is unfixable. Okay, and that's not why we came here anyway. We didn't go to to Afghanistan to build a nation. We went to Afghanistan to get the terrorists out and get Bin Laden. And when that was done, we should have left. I also don't think we ever should have gone to Iraq. I mean, to me, we took our eye off the ball. We destabilized the region. I don't know why we went there. I mean, there, you know, no one will ever know 100% the truth. But 
to me, it was an absolute mistake, and it it cost us because we had to split our forces, we had to split our attention, and uh, and and I think the the bigger issue is that we destabilized the region, and that's been my opinion from the very beginning. This has not evolved. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting getting so many people from so many you know branches of the armed services, Australia, the British, you know, American. Um, it it kind of seems that that same theme like when these men and women are placed onto the soil of these places see atrocities happening of course they've got their intrinsic motivation then to make a difference but the initial um you know uh initiation of some of these conflicts um you know are questionable and i grew up in an era where the falklands war happened and in retrospect um, you know, once the fighting started, it was too late. But, you know, again, I always wonder, could that not have been, fini- you know, fixed with diplomacy? I mean, really, in all honesty, the IRA conflicts happened, I mean, it's ended ultimately with diplomacy. And I think a lack of funding after terrorism wasn't so cool anymore. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that there's that you have your World War Two scenarios where there's no question. You know, I, I always say that, you know, I, I didn't join the military because I grew up in the Falklands War era. It kind of, even my young mind kind of made me question like, wow, you mean telling me a politician can send me to my death ultimately? But I always said that in a World War II situation, absolutely, I would have been first in line because that's a different thing. That's truly, you know, protecting nations from from genocide. And I know that happens around the world. So it's such a a, contra- well, a, a, a double-edged sword, if you like, because once they're there, it seems like they have to be able to justify their, their presence there. And, and they see things that definitely do that. But you know, you wonder about the caution of sending young Americans, Brits, Aussies, wherever into these, these places in the first place. I agree hundred percent. I just, I don't think there's an appreciation for the task at hand. You know, it's, it's easy to go in and drop some bombs and blow stuff up and disrupt infrastructure. But, you know, what are you really trying to do? You know, what, what, what is the desired end state? And then what, what criteria have you set to say when, when this happens, we're done. We don't do a good job of either one of those. Right. Yeah. Interesting perspective. So thank you. Um, all right. So then ultimately you are released. I'd just love to kind of hear you, your physical and your mental journey for like the, you know, the couple of years after that, because that must have been, you know, mentally taxing just from the injuries alone. But obviously you've got discovering that you lost people that you didn't even realize you lost. And, and then, you know, in a way, I'm sure there was some sort of survivor's guilt too, after losing so many people that you loved. Yeah. You know, again, there are specific moments in time laying in the field hospital in Mogadishu and having the, you know, all the guys come over and I'm looking around and, you know, where's Cliff and Donovan? And, uh, the commander tells me, you know, that they're gone. And, you know, it just, it just adds on, you know, and, uh, and then you, you know, you, you, then you find out about the, the horrific treatment of the remains of my crew and, and just those things that are, hard to even comprehend honestly that that happened and uh you know and then you see the the impact of the families and you go to the memorial services and it just it's just this heartbreaking event after heartbreaking event and and then uh you know as i'm making the recovery physically i i get told i'm I'm never going to fly again and you know there goes the dream that i've had my whole life and and uh seemed like the ultimate 
insult added to injury, I suppose. And, and that actually ended up in the end motivating me because I, I felt like maybe that's one thing I could control. The rest of this I couldn't control, but I could control that. So I, I really set my course on, uh, proving to the army that they should let me fly. And, uh, I, I fully recovered to the point that uh, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon uh, about 10 months after my femur rod was removed. So the femur rod stayed in for a year, and then after it came out in January of 95, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon in October, and I actually blew away my previous time. I beat pretty much everybody else from the unit that went, and I uh, I put a... Uh, a request for waiver through the chain of command citing that as an example of my ability to to fly helicopters in the army put me on a waiver and let me fly and i I flew for five more years so at at least that was one win among all those losses uh and and it just it feels good to you know to 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 set out to do something and accomplish something difficult and, and make an otherwise crappy situation a little bit better yeah it's amazing how motivating to some people being told you can't do it actually ends up being that's the wrong thing to tell someone. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I'm, I'm the same. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. just just before we move on, one one final thing. So you um, obviously you lost members of your your team, but also being injured, being captured, having you know the the recovery that you have, you're also physically removed from that group of of people that you worked with for so long. You know, even even that weren't hurt or involved. Um, did you feel the the kind of mental pressure from not being around those people that technically were were kind of like your coping mechanism before you know before you were hurt yeah there's no question i mean you're 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 removed from the environment that you had become so accustomed to and 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 i was never able to go back i mean it just it, it never it never comes back around i mean you experience different things and you create different uh, bonds and relationships but but that one has never come back. I mean, we, you know, we all stay in touch, but we never function like that as a team again. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly miss it, uh, you know, and on the, on the, uh, Al Baghdadi mission here recently is the, probably the most recent example where it's like, damn, I would have loved to be on that mission. You know, it's just, that's just, that's what we live for. You know, that was, uh, that was our Super Bowl, And, uh, and, uh, they did such a tremendous job on that one. And, and a lot of others that, uh, makes you makes you long to be back in the saddle for sure absolutely now a mutual friend connected us that was dr tanya glenn did you find any areas of counseling mental health tools that helped you you know not just from this incident but just you know transitioning out of the military in general yeah you know i i again you know going back to my upbringing uh it's not the kind of thing that uh you typically would even consider right but it was such an extreme situation and and so incredibly difficult that uh, there was a a lot of resources available and and i I had some great conversations with some really uh profoundly intelligent people on the topic and uh, and and it all helped me it really did and then i think the ultimate thing uh, the, the the two things that also helped me, and I have a slight advantage over many, is that people wanted to hear me tell my story. And when you do talk about it, and you do get those uh, get those things that are haunting you out in the open, I do think it, it is healthy. And 
it wasn't by design. I didn't do it because I wanted to. I initially, you know, sort of had to be dragged out of me, but um, became more comfortable with it over time. And uh, that and then writing my book, I think, uh, you know, are the ultimate uh, sort of relief from all of that, uh, that what otherwise would have been emotional baggage that I think has been so partially offloaded anyway. Yeah. Now, as you transition out of the military, um, obviously, I think there's, there's a lot of us that struggle with that identity. I, I was a helicopter pilot. I was a firefighter. Um, what was that initial transition for you like after you decided to actually retire properly? So I'm, again, uh, somewhat fortunate is that I ended up in a, a, a part of our organization that does the, the sort of the business of acquiring systems. And, uh, you know, we call it the acquisition uh core acquisition system in the in the military and again it's not something i ever would have done had somalia not happened but uh not being able to fly operationally like i had before i I needed to figure out how can i contribute so i got involved in this and and it was although i didn't know it at the time it became uh, basically a, a gradual transition instead of such a radical one so you start to get involved in the business side of things from the from the buyer perspective from the government perspective but it helps you uh, you know, gain that skill set and then sort of get your focus off of the pure tactical side of things and, and onto the what goes on behind the scenes. And uh, and that was very helpful. And then I, I got this great quote, and it's I, I really think it, it helped me not just deal with Somalia but deal with retirement. And this good friend of mine said, hey, you got to remember when you walk out the gate, you're living in their world, they're not living in yours. If You cannot expect the world to be what, your world was when you were doing what you did. You have to realize that, you know, you now have to adapt. You have to adjust. It's, it's, it's a new environment and you have to adapt to it. If you think about it the other way around, you, you're probably going to struggle. Yeah. Now, what, what, uh, uh, excuse me, what advice would you give to people considering transitioning out of first responders, military, um, as far as preparation in those last two, three years? Yeah, you know, I think it's tough if you if you don't prep at all. I mean, if if you go from if I had gone from you know tactical operational guy, and you know I dropped my retirement paperwork and I walk out the door, I think I'd have had a hard time. I think, you know, you need to plan for it. You need to be thinking about, uh, you know, I, I'm I can see that retirement is you know whatever or or separation is is three years out. You know, what do I what do I think I want to do? I, what, what might a follow on career be? Uh, you know, some people want to keep doing the same thing as a as a civilian or a contractor, and that's fine. Uh, but you know, others want to you know diversify a little bit, uh, and and you need to prep yourself to do that because uh, you know it may require a, uh, a degree, it might require some training, it might require uh, you know some other skill set that you don't possess, and make sure you find the time to to do that so that you're better prepared when you when you do make that transition, and it's really unusual for someone to separate from an organization like that and find the perfect fit right away. So don't get frustrated and don't get discouraged. It's, it, it, you know, I think the average might be two to three moves. Uh, but, uh, you know, you get smarter each time you, you know what to look for after that first one and you, and you might, uh, you know, you'll get better at it and, and ultimately find a good home. Uh, and don't sell yourself short. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, they think about their, their military experience and they, 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 they don't realize how so much of what we learn 
uh, is applicable in, in, in industry or whatever it is that you want to get involved in, whether it's the work ethic or a commitment to the mission or leadership or whatever, all those really, really strong positive attributes, those are all like gold out here in, in business. So uh, make sure you, uh, you know, fully exploit those. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's funny because, because my profession specifically fire, you know, the, the, the fire service, I think they downplay that a lot. And, you know, I tell people, I'm like, take a step back. When people call 911, you don't know what you're going to. And if it doesn't involve arresting someone, you know, which the law enforcement side obviously is incredible at, we have to figure out everything else. So to be that kind of problem solver for 10, 20, 30 years is, is a hell of a skill. So one of, one of my British friends, um, he's got a colleague who's in the military and he's, he transitioned out, but then carried on as a civilian. And, and it looks like his, you know, contract is probably going to end. And he was telling me the guy was like, kind of, you know, in, in a worried way, well, what will I do? And I think you have to flip that to the other side of the coin. Like there's a giant planet that we all live on. What the hell do you want to do? Go get it. You know yeah. what I mean? You, you've, you've paid your dues. Now go do whatever you want to do. Who's going to be lucky enough to get me? Yeah, yes. That's how you should be looking at it. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, speaking of this, and I'm fascinated now, so I want to get to Pinnacle Solutions. So, so how, how did you come to the decision to start, you know, this kind of company and, and what made you decide to be the boss of your own company rather than go work for someone else? So I, I, I did work for someone else and, and I liked the job. We were in uh, a relatively small company and uh, it's good environment, good culture, and we got bought. And uh, I'm not a good fit for large company. You know, large companies are very structured, roles are very narrow, um, there's a lot of bureaucracy. And, and some of that, there's a reason for it. You know, in some cases, it's probably not necessary, but it still exists. And I did not like it. And I, and I thought, well, I've been out here in industry now for seven years. I have pretty good handle on what it's going to take to make this happen. And uh, because I'd been in, I'd been in business development, I'd been a program manager, I'd been a general manager involved in all the processes, writing proposals, everything that you kind of have to know how to do to, to do what we do. And I thought, you know what, I'm, uh, you know, mid to late forties. If I'm going to do something, now's the time. And, uh, I, I, my advice is always to, to younger people these days is, you know, it's, it's in its most simplest form is don't sell yourself short. I mean, don't be afraid to fail. If you're afraid to fail, you're never going to realize your full potential. You have to sort of really, really stretch what you think your real capabilities are to, to truly find what your limits are. And, I thought, you know, this this could be my last big swing at the ball. I want to give it a shot. So why why be unhappy in a job when you could, you know, take a chance and build something that you can be proud of? And 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 absolutely, we have built something that I'm very proud of. Right. Well, I know one of the things I watched your your video on the website, and uh, you know, one of the things that you talk about being proud of is having a hundred percent delivery success, like actually giving them the product on the date that you said we will give the product. And that sounds like blatantly obvious, but we all, you know, how many construction jobs do we hear get pushed back and back and back? You know, um, have the, the, the fire department specifically, the, the contract between the employer and the firefighters sometimes drags on for years in quote unquote negotiations. I think that's not even the right word if it takes that long. But, um, so what did you do differently having worked in, you know, those arenas probably that were drowning in red tape and, you know, to, to overcome some of the challenges that people almost just accept. 
And that's that's the problem is that once once that becomes normal, then that's that's just acceptable behavior and and that's just the way business is done in those organizations. And I think if you set the culture and the tone and 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 we've actually been refining this recently and trying to break it down to as simple the terms as possible. You know, I know companies have these, in some cases, long written mission statements and, and, and nobody really gets much out of that. I mean, you've got to break it down. And I compare it to the unit. I mean, our mission was time on target plus or minus 30 seconds. Everyone in that organization knew that's why the unit existed, right? So we try to do the same thing here. Make it simple. Deliver on time, period. That's the mission. So whenever everyone has a decision to make, it the first thing you consider is, is this going to affect schedule? And, and you always default to the, the choice that will keep you on schedule. Sometimes that means other things will suffer, but that's our priority. You know, that's who we are. That's our corporate identity. And, and, and it, I think it's working. You know, it, it, it isn't 100% perfect. We still you know, stumble here and there because some of what we do is very complex, but it's the culture and the culture is we deliver on time. Our meetings start on time. If, you know, if you've got a suspense, you meet it. Uh, you know, if you don't there, you better have coordinated ahead of time to, to change that expectation or, you know, you failed. Right. Now you mentioned about keeping the bar high, not only in the military, but obviously in your, your company now, how do you attract great people to come you know, to this area, this arena where the bar is set high, and then also, then how do you keep them after that? Well, I think great people want to be in great organizations. They, they so that's a natural byproduct of having high standards. Is that you know you're going to get great people because that's who they want to be part of. And uh, you know, we just we just uh, we're we're hiring a senior level position here recently, and what we heard from everyone is you know, they're interested in this position because we have such a great reputation and, and, and that's everything because we're in a war for talent. There, there is an absolute, you know, hands down slugfest for talent. There's, there, there are, you know, we're in negative unemployment right now. People, people can find jobs if they want them. And you really have to put in the extra effort to get those people. And part of that is your culture, your reputation, you know, it gets around, you know, there's, whether it's social media or, or whatever other means, people communicate now more than they ever did before. So who you are is going to get out there. And, and that's another reason to focus on making sure you have identified, this is who we are. This is the standard we set. You know, if you come here, the expectation is going to be you perform at that level. And again, you, you get people that are good at what they do that want to be part of that. They don't want to be part of an organization that doesn't share those same values. So we got tremendous response and, uh, and I, I'm flattered by it because I, you know, these are great people and they want to come be a part of this. That to me, that's the ultimate compliment. Right. And in this, this arena of micromanaging that we see a lot, I know some departments, um, you know, that I've worked for, I've worked for four. So if there's been a gamut, a spectrum from incredibly, well run to the polar opposite. Um, what is your business philosophy having come from a group of men where you were actually trusted to do your jobs? Ha has that carried over to your management style once people are hired? Absolutely. I mean, I am the last person in the world you would call a micromanager. You know, I, I mean, I think if you do your job right, which, you know, my job is set the, set the course, 
set the standard, set the goals, hire the right people and let them go. You know, that my job is not to get down there and tell them how to do it. It's, you know, they know what they need to do. They're the right people. And if you get out of their way, they're probably going to be more successful than they would be if you got in their way. Absolutely. Now with that same philosophy, um, I've heard uh, Tim Kennedy and some other people talking about how the military is struggling to, to, you know, to attract good people. I know the special operations community are certainly, sadly, law enforcement is, is struggling at the moment. What would be some of your, you know, the advice that you would give those organizations now to, to pull people back in? And like you said, quality people back in, not just bums on seats. I think the challenge that both the military and law enforcement face today is, is public perception. Um, uh, uh, and it's, it's really unfortunate because it's so out of line with reality. And it, it, uh, it, it, it's upsetting to me because I, you know, obviously I know a lot of military people. I've been around a lot of law enforcement organizations at all levels and, and, you know, the cultures are very similar and values are very similar and they're full of great people. And unfortunately, you know, on the military side, you got a little bit of, uh, of war fatigue, I guess you would say, you know, uh, the average young person is probably not motivated to, to go out there and get involved in this because it, it's a controversial, uh, situation that we're in and, and not everyone supports it. You know, as you alluded to earlier, if it was World War II, yeah, everybody wants in. This is, you know, we're going to go out there and right a wrong, but it's, it's, there's a, there's there's a lack of a compelling reason to want to do it you know to expect uh, this love of country is enough i think is a little bit naive there's got to be a reason to want to be a part of this right and on the law enforcement side i think it has more to do with seldom is there a good news story in the news you know it's it's always a bad news story with a few exceptions and that to me is something that I'm sure all all law enforcement organizations are doing their level best to address, but you know, with body cameras, and I don't disagree with it, but with with all of that, you know, you see the one thing that went wrong, and you don't see the hundred thousand things that went right, and uh, and that's a tough thing to to overcome. Um, it's it's getting up. It's the point of all this is just getting a positive message out there in every way that we can. You know, getting involved, uh, you know, in in, in the communities and presenting a positive uh, message and culture as often and to as many people as you can to create the true reality, the perception that, uh, you know, these are great things to be a part of. And I just don't think, you know, that that's a difficult thing to do today with the way the media deals with things. And then, you know, on the military side, the fact that we've been in these conflicts for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, and as as we're recording this, they just had uh, New Jersey City is going through their shooting at the moment, and a one police officer was killed in this ambush. So that's the thing is we're losing men and women. I mean, every single day, pretty much, and yet we still focus on you know the, these uh, mistaken shootings. And and something I talk about a lot on this podcast: being a first responder, having experienced shift work, um, you know, and sometimes a lack of training. Like these men and women were were ultimately. Uh, you know, made that decision, a split second decision that may have been wrong. But how, how many times have they been mandatory to stay another shift? Had they had any training, you know, in, in, you know, weapons tactics, unarmed tactics, you know, I mean, there's all these other things that play into this final solution. 
and the way it's being portrayed, in my opinion, is these men and women joined the police service just so they could find a minority to murder. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot more efficient ways of doing that if you were that kind of psychotic racist. But these people have put their lives on the line to protect complete strangers. The cars they pull over with the tinted windows, they don't know what color these people are. But I've had personally known police officers that have left our fire station um, and then five minutes later the crew has run out to a shooting and it's the policeman that was just sitting with them. So I think that the media is doing a huge disservice and I think that we as a nation need to force, you know, we the people need to change this where these officers aren't be demonized. And of course, we hang out to dry the, the real corrupt ones. But the rest of them need to have as much support as we can give them because no one else is signing up to do that job. I agree 100%. I mean, to me, that's the issue that law enforcement faces right now is that is that a, a, there's a mis, uh, <clears throat> misinterpretation of, of reality. You know, even here, we just had one here in, in town where I mean, in the end, the body camera footage showed that the, the person had a weapon. But for a month, you know, it was, uh, you know, a, a famous attorney X that showed up and, you know, demanding the footage, like, what are you trying to hide? And, you know, just this constant drumbeat, this message that, you know, somehow the, the officers were, were in the wrong. And I agree with you 100% that even if they were, you ought to not, you ought to put yourself in their shoes and, and try to make those split second decisions. You know, every once in a while, unfortunately, there's going to be a bad, a mistake made. And, and I'm not defending that. I'm just saying it's reality. It's a, it's a, it's ridiculous to expect that there won't be any mistakes made. Yeah. And then by, and by supporting the police officers, you'll make it safer for the civilians as well. That's the part people miss. The more we support them, the more we equip them, the more we train them, the more recovery they get between their shifts, the safer it is for your teenage son who's pulled over and is reaching for his driving license in the glove box. I mean, it's a win-win. But if every time a politician comes to you and you agree to more and more budget cuts for your local police fire, you know, whatever it is, people aren't told that this is the knock-on effect. And that's what angers me so much. Yeah, I'm with you. Right. Well, I, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. You've been so generous with your time. Um, the first one is I always ask about a book, but let's talk about yours in first. So, so your book is the, in the, excuse me, in the company of heroes. Now, is that a, a Dick Winter quote? Cause I know, uh, in one of the Band of Brothers episodes, I believe he, he uses that same quote himself. I am not sure. It might be, but I didn't steal it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a pretty general term, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I came up with it on my own. If you Google it, it's usually my book that shows up. I'll have to, I'll have to look at that though. Yeah. He's, he's talking about, if you watch the Banner Brothers, there's one particular scene. I've shared it before. It's, it's a heart wrenching 60 seconds, but he's talking to one of his other, you know, colleagues. Um, and I said colleagues, one of his other brothers. And he says, do you remember um, uh, uh, his grandson wrote him a letter? And I forget exactly how it goes, but he said, I think, I believe he said, I served in a company of heroes. So that'd be kind of interesting for you to find that that clip as well. I'll see if I can find it and I'll send it to you. But I mean, oh, okay. another, another incredible man in military history. So so anyway, back to back to the book. So what what made you decide to write that? You know, what was the timing that, that it seemed like it was the right thing to do then? So I had taken some notes and written just some thoughts down early on, and then I just put it away. And uh, because at the time, in the special operations world, you just didn't talk about what you did. It was no one knew a lot of these units existed, and it was it was 
really uh, not considered acceptable behavior to go out there and 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 talk about it and, and write about it. And then and then Black Hawk Down happens. And I mean, Mark was given complete access to everything, which shocked all of us. And it turned out okay. I don't think anybody resented it, but. Uh, you know, the book got written and it did well and it exposed everything. And then the movie comes out and I had retired when the movie came out. So, you know, we're talking almost 10 years after the event and I went to see the movie and it ends with me in captivity. And I'm like, well, I mean, there's a whole other story left to tell here. So I thought this, if I'm going to do something, now's the time. I've let enough time go by. There's, you know, there's nothing I'm going to talk about that's current ops. Um, you know, it's all been disclosed in Black Ark Down, but the actual captivity part is is untold. And I thought, let's see uh, if there's some interest. And there was a lot of interest. We got like eight bids from different publishers, and you know, that's the key if you're going to try to sell a book is to get a, a, a bidding war going, basically. And that's what it was. And then as it turned out, right after. Uh, uh, that all happened, uh, or right about the same time anyway, 9-11 occurred, and, you know, there was a tremendous interest in anything military, so my timing was good, and, and it did well, and I'm proud of it. I think it turned out great. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a hell of a story. It needs to be told. And just when you were talking about the first world, Black Hawk Down ending with you captured, I'm surprised some god-awful member of Hollywood hasn't made Black Hawk Down 2. <laughs> You know, some awful yeah. version of what happened to you next. But um, okay, so then that's your book. Uh, I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It could be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. So, you know, I answer this question different ways every time I get asked. You know, today I'm reading a lot of business books, but I don't think business books necessarily, um, you know, are, are most relevant to to the folks that I think might be listening uh, I, I think I would go back to the uh, a book that I read uh, coincidentally in uh, Desert Storm. Uh, it's called On Wings of Eagles, and it was a it, it was about the the employees of, of Pro Systems who were uh, in uh, Iran, and uh, there was no way to get them out. And, and uh, Ross Perot basically organized and funded a special ops mission of his own to go in and get these people out and uh and they, and they were successful and it's a really cool story and then obviously getting to meet uh, Ross Perot multiple times later and you know understand his whole life better there were many stories where he did those sort of things behind the scenes and no one knew about it but that that was a good one it's really the first time I I knew anything about him and I uh, I I it got me um uh, you know, even more intrigued by those type of missions and, you know, refusing to take no for an answer and finding a way to solve the problem, uh, you know, when, when no one else seems willing to do anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's pretty much the core of special operations. And, and I love that philosophy. And I think that that's why so many of the, the members of those groups talk about police and fire the same way. They're like, you know, you guys don't know what's going to happen when the tones go off. You kind of have to do the same thing. You have to figure out how to make it better because no one else is coming. Yep. Right. So then uh, same question, but a, a movie. So, uh, you know, I'll go with, you know, one of the earliest impressions on me was the Green Berets. You know, I just, I think that's a great movie. And, uh, you know, it's John Wayne and, 
again, this similar kind of stuff, but in Vietnam era. And, uh, you know, again, sort of first insight for me into special forces. And, uh, you know, I saw it when I was young and, and thought it was a really cool movie and, and, and still enjoy it. I probably, you know, watched it a few times. I, I really like it. Brilliant. All right. So then uh, kind of similar question then. Is there a documentary that you love? Oh, wow. Now we're getting really difficult. Um, <laughs> I, I like them in general just because, you know, they tend to be more factual uh, depending on who they're made by, I suppose. But um, God, I'm, I'm, I can't think of one, honestly, off the top of my head that, that I would say, yeah, that's the one that, uh, that, I, that I, would, uh, I would point to. Okay. Was there, is there one about Somalia that you thought was done the best? You know, there's been a lot, a lot of those. Um, none of them are horrible. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they all tell sort of different angles on the story. Um, you know, it's been a while since I've seen any of them, but, uh, I, you know, I think probably the one, uh, I know there was one done pretty early on would be the one that I would go to. But I don't recall what the name of it was, actually. Okay, no problem at all. Uh, I remember seeing one. I think it was the Military Channel or History Channel. It was like a three-part, very, very long one. But I remember that was definitely the most detailed one that I saw. But, yeah, that's, uh, that's probably the one I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Let me think for a second. Ask me another question. We'll come back to this so while you're thinking, the, one of my last ones before we talk about where we can find you is what do you do to decompress these days? Um, it's kind of a lot of the same things I did when I was young. I, I still enjoy skiing. Uh, up until just very recently, I was still playing ice hockey, uh, which which I really, really enjoy. And I'll probably start up again. I just took a break because I had a couple injuries there. And um, I... Uh, I wondering whether or not it makes sense to be uh you know my late 50s with all these uh, orthopedic injuries to be risking getting banged around like that but uh enjoyed uh, climbed a few 14,000 foot mountains last year in Colorado we love going out there um you know I'd love to do something radical like Everest or or Denali or something like that I I probably won't but I, it really really interests me and uh, maybe I'll do something slightly less risky that uh, is more attainable but but I, I really enjoy that. It's a physical challenge, and it's just a, it's just an awesome experience. You know, being up at altitude like that. Um, you know, we we enjoy spending time at the lake, uh, spending time with the family. Uh, you know, those things. And and I like work. I mean, I I I, I don't come to work just wishing I I didn't have to work today. I I enjoy the challenge that uh, I'm faced with every day here. Brilliant. All right. Before we get to you know, where we can find you online. Did you think of any people? If not, not a yeah, big deal. I would say, I would say Stan McChrystal probably. Cause I, I think what, you know, from the guys that I know, I know, I know him, but I don't know him well. Uh, but the guys that I know that worked with him, just talk about him and his leadership as, uh, just incredible. Brilliant. Okay. So then, um, if people want to reach out to you or if they want to learn about Pinnacle Solutions, where are the best places for them to go online? Um, so we have a LinkedIn uh, site. I mean, it just go on there and look for Pinnacle Solutions, and that's where the most news would show up about things that are going on in the company. And then uh, our company website is uh, pinnacle-si-sierraindia.com, and uh, you know that's just general information about the company. Uh, the most, as I said, though, the most uh, current information would be on LinkedIn. We 
we I don't do a lot of social media, but we do post a lot of things there about on my personal site and then uh, and just look up my name uh, and then on the company site. Brilliant. Okay, well, Mike, I want to say thank you so much. Um, firstly, I know with with many people that have been through stories that they've probably probably told hundreds of times and probably just want to move on. Um, I really do appreciate you, you know, taking that moment and and uh, telling the story here. I hope that it's new for some people and it's definitely a new perspective for others. But gleaning all your you know life lessons from before and after, which is the most important thing, I know is going to be very valuable for listen, uh, people listening. So thank you so much for being so generous today. All right, no problem. I'm uh, I'm happy to do it. You know, I think uh, there's lots to be learned from it. And I think we have learned from it, and uh, you know, just don't want to let it repeat itself by letting it fade into history. Mm-hmm.